my name's Hadley, and I'm going to be reading our scripture for tonight. Um, This is James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. This is the word of God. Tonight we're going to talk about temptation as a trial and continue our conversation from last week. Let me pray. Jesus, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to open our eyes. We can't see apart from your ministry, Holy Spirit. I pray that you give us ears of faith to be able to hear your voice, not just somebody's message, but your voice, and that your voice would bring life to us, either for the first time or deeper life. And Father, because we're a missional community, I pray that what we hear tonight, you would be so kind that it wouldn't just affect us, but it it would have a ripple effect into our friend groups on campus. I pray that for all of us here, we would not just be listening to this with, for personal relevance or application, but also that we would be listening for a friend in some way that we could go to them and help. Would you make these things come true? I ask this in your son's name. Amen. Well, just as a little bit of a way to remind you of what we talked about last week, do you remember the military il- illustrations we, we started out last week talking about? We were really wrestling with that question of how does the military do it? How do they squeeze decades and decades of character formation into six months at boot camp? How do you squeeze a lifetime of heart-level character change into such such a short amount of time? Well, you know the answer. Boot camp, trials and tests every day. It's the fast lane of maturation and growth. Well, how does God squeeze a century's worth of character formation, heart-level change. How does he squeeze that much formation into just a few decades of you walking with him in this life? Same idea. Trials and tests and sufferings of various kinds that he designs and uses to tone your faith and to deepen your faith and to transform your heart. And that's why it's important that we pay attention and count our trials, be they low-key trials, very subtle, or major things that are going on in our lives. The importance of counting it is so that we can get our wits about us and look up and count on God to be at work in those trials, however silly you might think they are or serious. Counting our trials helps alert us to count on God to be in our trials and and up to good and at work for good. So tonight, if you look back down at this passage, um, you can tell James is not done with this conversation about trials. He is continuing the conversation that he started with us last week. 
Verse 12 flows right out of it. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, having stood the test, they'll receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised. So it's flowing off out of everything we just talked about. But here's the new part. Here's where he goes next. Trials are an opportunity for joy, but they're also an opportunity for temptation. They're an opportunity for joy and gladness because God can can transform our hearts. They're an opportunity for temptation because sin can deform our hearts. In the very same trials that can make one person grow and draw near to him can make the other person drift and reject him. So our trials, again, if you were here last week, remember that list of examples, the little ones, the big ones, about what a trial is. They're opportunities for the best of you to come out and also the worst of you to come out, right? I mean, have you ever been in a trial where it just got messy pretty quick? I mean, you lost your temper, you started grumbling, started accusing, blaming God, blaming other people. It got messy really quick. Trials can trigger that. So there are opportunities for our hearts to be transformed or misformed, deformed. There are chances to grow deeper in faith or to grow deeper in selfishness. That's where James takes the conversation in new ways tonight. One thing is clear, though, about last week and this week. Your trials and these tests and sufferings are changing you. They are not going to leave you the way they found you. The things you're going through right now, minor or major, are changing you at a heart level. You will be different on the other side of it in a small way or in a big way, but you will not be the same. They're doing something with you. Y'all know this. Um, You've also seen how the same trial can produce really different outcomes. It can change people in opposite ways. You've maybe had two friends who both experienced something really similar. And with one of them, it, you know, It shot them straight towards God, and they really grew in their faith. And with the other one, they were done with God because of the very same trial that drew this person to him. What explains the difference? What's the difference? The short answer is, what's in their heart? What what was in their heart explains why one person was drawn towards him in the midst of that they were formed and transformed, and the other person was deformed or misformed. Um, A quick theology of the heart. If you want to know what what Jesus has to say about the heart, what the Bible has to say about the human heart, at a basic level, um, it's your command center. It's the control center of a human being, the headquarters, the origin of all of our thoughts and feelings and attitudes and actions. It's really important. If it's this important, you would expect God to talk about it a lot, and he does. Jesus was always talking about the heart, always bringing things deeper from just a behavior or moralistic level of like, what are you doing to why are you doing what you're doing? This is what he said in Mark, out of the overflow of your heart, your mouth speaks. And we could say by implication, and your mind thinks, and your emotions feel, and your body acts. But it all started in our hearts. So you could also put it another way, like our hearts are like a cup. And it deeply, deeply embedded in our soul. And in this little cup are our most powerful and personal desires and attractions and loves. 
They all reside in our heart. And whatever's going on in our heart, again, it drives and shapes our outward actions, our opinions, our beliefs. All of that is downstream of what's going on in here. Does this make sense so far? See some head nods. That's good, because that's the simple part. Let's throw in some chaos to mess it all up. The Bible also teaches that our hearts are not just kind of blank slates or clean slates. They've been infiltrated and infected, namely by sin, which we'll, we'll toss around that term and kind of flesh it out in the next few minutes together if that's not familiar to you. But the Bible basically describes sin as this cosmic vandal that ruins every last thing it's ever touched. So there's a lot of original goodness in your heart, good desires, that sin has come in and infected and inflamed and misaimed and warped and corrupted and messed up. And that's why there's so much chaos in our lives at a heart level. Sin, if it's that chaotic vandal that just ruins and topples everything it touches, operating in a place like a heart, like a human heart, that's a really dangerous thing, right? It's a big deal. Something so chaotic, infiltrating somewhere so critical to why you are the way you are and why you do what you do and why you love. And add to that that sin is not static, it's dynamic. In other words, sin is not like a marble that I swallowed and you can see it on an x-ray and you're like, there it is, get that thing out of you. It's more like uh, a bacterial infection or sepsis or something. It's a systemic disease that if, you, if you've ever had a blood infection or sepsis, that thing, um, the symptoms show up in every square inch of your body, right? Because it's systemic. It affects everything. And the Bible talks about sin in a human being's heart as a viral condition that we're infected by, not as the occasional headache or the occasional lapse into some you know, habitual sin but it's the condition that led to the habitual sin. In other words, it's like the MS or the lupus or the Crohn's that led to all the little outbreaks of symptoms. So not isolated things that we do, but the condition that makes us want to do those things. Does that make sense? That's a biblical understanding of sin. It's a glitch in the human operating system. And so it throws up error codes and spreads virus into everything we do. Nothing is simple anymore. Everything is slowed down and gummed up. That's sin. Does that resonate with your lived experience, by the way? One of the reasons um, the Bible became so plausible to me is when I started hearing people talk about how the Bible described sin, I was like, I've never heard anything this realistic that resonated with everything I knew about what life is like and what life was like for me. It made so much sense of it. Where do we see this going on in the passage? You just kind of keep that in your hand and keep looking down with me. Verse 15. Um, James is describing sin not as some static thing or isolated instance, but a, but a dynamic, evolving, growing, metastatizing um, uh, virus or living thing. It's alive, he says in verse 15. After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, little baby sin. And when sin is a big boy or grows up, big girl, it gives birth to death. In other words, its reproduction rate is through the roof. It is continually replicating and spreading and infecting new areas. It grows. So again, 
add this into the heart, this super critical, important core of your being, and you can imagine the chaos and the damage that it, that it brings to every corner of your life, emotionally and sexually, attractionally, intellectually, your family, your relationships, your soul, all of it. It affects all of those things. Really quickly, what effect does this have on your life and my life day to day? How do we experience this thing going on inside of us? First, it's hard to see it in operation because James says, and he'll continue to say in his book, it's deceptive. Jeremiah the prophet said, one of the chief characteristics of a fallen human heart, now we're talking about a fallen human heart, is that it's deceptive. It's a, it's a con man. It's a liar. You can never tell when it's telling you the truth or twisting the truth. So it's hard to see this, but James helps us. He kind of puts it out in a graph style. And he says in verse 14, each person is tempted when we are dragged away, or if you have a Bible open, it might say lured away by our own evil desire. It's talking about those warped, corrupted desires. Originally they were good, not anymore. We are lured away by those desires that are inside our hearts, and we're enticed. You're supposed to be thinking of fishing lures right now. James is using language that's usually used for animal trapping or catching fish. So how do we experience this in a day-to-day life? Well, it's like, I mean, ask the fish what it's like to see little minnows fly, uh, you know, floating through the water and they go gobble it up to have their lunch and they realize there's a six-inch hook embedded in that thing. They didn't know. It's really hard to tell when you're being deceived. But James says the way that this happens day to day in our lives is it lures us, um, it entices, it seduces us. That's sexual language he's using. He's using innuendo there. It seduces us. It appeals to us. And it drags us away. For the fish, it drags it out of its optimal living conditions and into a place it cannot survive. That's why he says it leads to death, ultimately. He's being literal, talking about physical death, but he's also talking about sin always leads to relational death, always leads to suffocation of your intellect or suffocation in your family or suffocation of your sexuality. That's what sin does. It's its nature. Just like cancer replicates and ruins organs, sin replicates and ruins every area of our lives. So Jesus looks at this whole process, and he says... um, all these, all these bent desires are present in our hearts, and they come out of us, and that explains why we do what we do. But get this. Jesus is the one who said it. The same one who called himself a friend of sinners, a savior of sinners. The same one who told us that his father has moved heaven and earth in all of human history around sending a rescuer for people who have a problem so deep they can't even get to it to fix it. So if Jesus is the one diagnosing our hearts, and Jesus, Jesus through his little brother James, who obviously got all this, remembered this from his brother, um, you know he's up to good. And um, you know he's up to diagnosing us so that we can run to him and seek cure in him. Now here's the thing about medicine. There's a saying, medicine has to go as deep as the disease. Medicine, the cure has to be as deep as the disease. If, if, if your greatest problems in life, the Bible says, are at a heart level, the cure 
or healing has to penetrate to a heart level too, right? You can't have a behavioral solution to a desire problem. That's why just changing kind of the, the, moving the furniture around of your behavior, your habits, doesn't change your heart. A heart problem demands a heart solution. The cure's got to go as deep as the disease. So if you add all this up, we should expect to find two things in any Christian's heart. And if you're not a Christian, that's great. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. But I'm, James is specifically speaking to Christians first. So we should expect to find two things in every Christian's heart, disease and cure. Or you could say disease and healing medicine. And you would expect that medicine that's beginning to course through a human being is encountering disease and they're battling it out for dominance of that space. That's what happens. Hopefully medicine gets the upper hand. This is what Paul says in Galatians 5, 16, and 17. He says, the desires of the flesh, which is sin or disease or temptation, the desires of the flesh war against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit war against the flesh. They are opposed to each other to, uh, so that you do not do what you want. There's, there's this war going on inside of you by your heart's two inhabitants. If you're a believer, if you're in Jesus, his spirit has, take, has moved into the neighborhood. He, he lives in you at the core of your being. And so does sin. You don't live in sin anymore under its dominance and under its mastery, but sin still lives in you. There's a life that it still has in you, a residue, a memory of it, an influence it still has over you. Again, you do not live under it, it being your master, but it still has a life of its own in you. So I want to put it all, I wanted to put all this in a, in a, um, in an illustration to wrap this up, because I know we've been a little bit kind of talking about principles and almost like logic for a few minutes, and I want to bring this down to earth and illustrate it. I had a professor in um, seminary, David Pallison. You've seen me do this before, um, but he said, you know, like I've said, a heart is like a mug or a cup, and it carries these, these precious things around in it. And he said, trials, um, trials bump into our hearts. They shake our hearts. They agitate it, frustrate it. And so they cause whatever is in the mug to spill out of the mug and to get all over you or all over the people close to you. So imagine this. Imagine after a large group tonight when there's that mob of people right here, the music's going and we're all hanging out and talking. I've got this thing filled to the brim, and I'm like, I want to go meet people and talk. So I'm going to kind of maneuver my way through the crowd. And as I do, you know, several of y'all accidentally bump into me, like we knock elbows, and this stuff starts spilling out onto some of you who are close to me. And let's escalate the illustration. Let's say that as this stuff spills on you, it starts like sizzling and like corroding into your skin. That's a big escalation, right? <laughs> And I say to you, hey, you bumped into me. That's why this spilled on you. Don't blame me. It's not my fault. You bumped into me. What would you say? You would be like, dude, what is in your mug? <laughs> you could care less about the bumping. You say, what is in there? And I'd say, it's just acid. And you would be like, why is there acid in your mug? Here's the point. 
It's what was in my mug to begin with that posed the danger, not the fact that my mug got bumped. This could have been filled with nothing, wouldn't have hurt anybody. It could have been filled with water, something less caustic. And as the bumping and agitation of trials and sufferings and temptations hit this and bumped it, what spilled out wasn't caustic to me or to you. So again, the trials and sufferings that we experience right now in our lives bump into your heart. And again, remember the two inhabitants of your heart, if you're a Christian, the spirit of Jesus and remaining sin. So as hard things happen to you and it bumps into you, it causes both of those things to be exposed and temptations to spill out. The bumping didn't cause the temptations to be in your heart. Does that make sense? The agitation, the trial, the suffering didn't put it in your heart. It just gave it an opportunity to come out for you and everyone else to see. Here's the bigger point James is making. This is going to make sense from the passage in just a minute. But the bigger, the bigger principle James is showing us is that while God brings his sons and daughters through trials, and though those trials can trigger and stir up temptation in your heart, God didn't cause those temptations. They didn't originate with him. And thus they're not his fault. One commentator put uh, distinguished temptations and trials this way. He said, trials are like an external push, like a bump. Temptations are like an internal pull. Trials are like an external push. Temptations are like an internal pull. Remember what Jesus said about our hearts. They're the epicenter. They're where these things reside in us, where these bent desires. And so while these trials might stoke the embers in your heart, it did not set the fire. It might be the wind that blows and makes those glow, but it didn't put the fire there. Let me bring this down um, all the way down to earth with an example. Imagine uh, a scenario that might be personal to you. Let's say you had a test this morning. You've not been getting much sleep the past few nights. You've been super stressed about it. So you're tired, you're groggy, the test is behind you, the stress is a little bit relieved, but it's night. Roommates are gone, you're lonely, you're bored, and you have nothing to do. That's the external trial, that's the push, the stressors, the pressures that put you in a hard situation. That you could count as a trial, turn to God in the midst of, he shapes you, but often what happens is that trial fans the flame of temptation inside of us, and then you begin to feel the internal pull towards looking at porn. We're calling up somebody you know, it's kind of like, this never goes well when I'm with this person, but I'm lonely. Those hard circumstances you were in did not cause the next thing that you did, they just provided the context for it. Where did those things come from? Again, to belabor the point, from within. From within. Why is James pressing the issue so much? It's for a really beautiful and practical reason. First is, that, first is to help us diagnose ourselves and to understand what is the problem inside of me. Is it, because a lot of us, we come from a long line of blame shifters. We blame circumstances. We blame people. We blame God. 
We blame God. And the way that that sounds coming out in our day-to-day life is, and by the way, this is, I'm making this number up because I, I know barely anything about the Enneagram. But we say stuff like, well, I'm an Enneagram 7 wing 4. That's why I'm controlling. I don't know if that has anything to do with an Enneagram 7. But you hear what we're saying? We're, we're, we're subtly, we're not intentionally doing this. We're subtly shifting blame, washing our hands of responsibility and saying, I can't do anything about this. It's not my fault. It's the way God made me. Sometimes we'll even use that language explicitly. God gave me these desires, these attractions. He made me this way. How would, he give, how would he make me this way and then tell me I can't explore those or act on those? Does this sound like familiar, either things you think or things you've heard? Or I'm just, I'm a type B person. I'm laid back. We have very convenient justifications for the temptations and desires that reside in our hearts. James is trying to surface that and bring it into light so that we can accurately diagnose ourselves and stop blaming everything around us, not because he's slapping us on the hand, but because when we're blaming everything around us and not seeing that the problem originates from within, we never run to Jesus. We never have a problem big enough to necessitate a savior who's divine, right? We just have little problems that need a little bit of schedule adjustment, another book read, a coffee with an intern, and it's all fixed. James is deepening our sense of the problem to heighten our sense of the Savior that we need. Um, This is really hard stuff to talk about. Like, let's just name that. There's a lot of good and a lot of hard things about culture in any given moment. One One of the great things, some of the great things I love about this cultural moment we're all living through um, is that it has an eye for complexity. It doesn't tend to oversimplify things. Um, It it gets sin uh, isn't just something we do. It's influenced by a lot of stuff that's happened to you, maybe sin that's been done against you, maybe ways you were raised. That's helpful. Um, It has no tolerance for judging other people because it has an appreciation for the complexity of what life's like for them. So it says, put your gun away, listen to them, have compassion. That's a good thing, right? So these are good things in our cultural moment. One of the bad things and unhelpful things in our cultural moment um, is that it puts a no trespassing sign on all of us at the level of our desires. Nobody's allowed to go there and talk with you about that. You're the final arbiter who gets to say whether this is a healthy desire or unhealthy, good or bad, leads to life, leads to death, is gonna go go well for me, is gonna end poorly for me. So it's even more than a kind of my body, my choice kind of attitude, it's it's a my heart, my desires, my choice. And to, to come and to talk to me about what my deepest desires are, or for even God himself to come and intrude in that area of our lives, it's we're extra sensitive there, all of us because we've got those no trespassing signs set up. And that's what makes a lot of this conversation difficult. Scripture says this is a really dangerous game, though. Because, again, if if the source of your deepest problems exists at a heart level, and and, and you're subtly or directly saying to other people and to God, well, you're not allowed at at a heart level. I'm... I'm not in a conversation of negotiating my desires and whether they're healthy or not, good or not, moral or not. No. Do you see what you're doing? You're pushing away any opportunity for growth, for correction, 
for repentance, for truth. We're pushing away all of those things. It's like telling an oncologist, no, I draw the line at MRIs and biopsies. I'm not doing that. That's too intrusive. But what if the MRI and the biopsy is unto healing, unto a cure that goes as deep as the problem, unto a savior that matches the scope and towers over the scope of the problem? These are the reasons James is saying emphatically, let no one say when he or she is being, uh, is being tempted that God is tempting me. He's trying to make sure that you don't accidentally push the one thing you have going for you better than anything else, which is the presence of a compassionate and patient and gracious and powerful God who specializes in helping sinners, who loves to save sinners, who loves to meet you where you are, who loves to stoop down, and have the conversation again about what growth or repentance would look like. There is a way to accidentally push God away. And then when you need him, you look up. And it's not necessarily that he's far away, but you're far away and you're lost. James knows as good as any of the rest of us, once you've determined that someone's against you, you do not go to them for help. You cut them out. And the same dynamic is possible with God. And James is saying, y'all, we cannot risk that. We cannot risk that. Therefore, this is worth our attention. This is worth our follow-up questions. This is worth clarity in these matters. Well, let's, as we begin to kind of wrap up this conversation, let's get ourselves to a place of talking more about that cure, about the way forward. What can save us from this slide into temptation and sin and death, this nasty process James is describing? Um, this is where it's all important and all decisive about whether you still live in sin, under its dominion, under its mastery, if, it's your, if, it, if it dominates you and controls you. If you're not in Jesus, the Bible's, it's, it's a stark diagnosis, but it's unto your healing too. The Bible's diagnosis is that you're dead in sin. You can't fight it. You're not up to the task. You're not tall enough. You're not strong enough. You're not faithful enough. You're not consistent enough. And your heart is corrupted. And so the answer for you, if you're not in Jesus, is, is to, to not proceed any further with, with anything else I'm going to talk about, but it's to go back to Jesus who has come to save sinners. It has a long track record of doing that and doing it with a smile on his face. You have to be liberated from sin, transferred out of its dominion in order to fight it. So that's the first thing. But for those who are alive in Jesus, what's a way forward for us? Well, the way forward for us, we, we've already said it is littered with trials, it's littered with temptations, it's littered with triggers. But listen to what James says in verse 18. This is beautiful. God... Who, the father of, heaven, father of the heavenly lights who does not change, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be, that you might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures, that you, you might be part of the springtime of all of creation as life grows out of what used to be dead. 
Look at the language that James uses here. In other words, he's saying God, out of his own voluntary initiating love, gave us new life or new birth into his kingdom. In other words, he unilaterally plucked us out from under the mastery and dominion of sin and brought us into freedom in Jesus who has set us free. That's what he means. The word of truth that he's talking about is not biblical principles or biblical wisdom or Bible life hacks. It's the gospel. What other word, what other word would James be talking about that is capable of giving life? He says in verse 21 later that's capable of saving your soul. It's the words of resurrection life. It's the words about Jesus accomplishing and conquering our great enemy, sin, that we might be freed from it. So to put it succinctly of how we can grow in this area and move forward, James would say, receive the word of truth, which is able to save your souls. But let's get practical. I want to end with a story to to just, again, illustrate what this looks like in real life. How do we get practical? If everything that I've said is true, if, every, if, if, if what I've told you tonight is what James is telling you and it's, the, it's God's word to you, um, and if your heart is the way that he's described it, and if you're driven by your deepest desires and wants and loves, how in the world do you get that deep to change that stuff? As a Christian, he's been set free from sin, but you say, I want to want different things. I want to want God more. I want to love my neighbor more. I want to want justice more. I want to, I want, to want truth more. I want, to, I want to want these things more than all the lesser things I settle for. How would you change your wants? Theologians call the process the expulsive power of a greater affection. The expulsive power of a greater affection. In other words, the only way you get over one desire is when a bigger, better one comes along. Quick example, you know what I mean. You had, a, you had an internship interview, you didn't get it, you were super bummed, but then two weeks later, a much better internship, much better pay, closer to where you wanted to be popped up, you have interviewed, you got it. You don't even think about this one anymore. A better desire came along, a bigger desire came along and gobbled up this one. That's how you get over stuff. That's how you move on and graduate to bigger and better desires. When your desires begin to change, when your loves begin to change, your actions and your words and your thoughts and your emotions and your attitudes begin to change. That's what we said, right? When the heart changes, all the stuff that comes out of it begins to change too. Here's the stories. I had so much fun today texting with a lot of my old... um, Students, they were freshman guys when I met them back in 2006 when I was first an intern here. And uh, we were kind of walking down memory lane together today. I thought of them when I was preparing and studying for this uh, passage. I got to see in the most beautiful way in four or five of these guys' lives the power, the expulsive power of greater affections. Here's how I met them, though. I I have vivid memories. I used to live off Henderson right by Brumby, and we, Freshman Fellowship was tiny. We did the guys' Freshman Bible study in my living room over there. And I remember these guys, Kelly and Austin and Andrew and Jonathan and, and a lot of others, uh, would come over and, I love you, freshman guys, but let's have a laugh um, together. Uh, 
in that living room, I mean, at least for the first few months together, these guys are like farting on each other. And they're, they're like making jokes about how many days it's been since they took a shower. And they're talking about how late they slept and how, how few classes they go to. That was kind of, that was how I first encountered these guys. We had a lot of conversations about what growing up looked like, what, what, would, what would be good steps of maturity and kind of leaving adolescence behind and taking on more responsibilities. And there was a desire to change, but not much ability to change. But whoa, to a man, I got to be here long enough for three years to see these men each meet the girls who would become their wives. And I got to see, no kidding, radical Radical change in every single one of them. Andrew met Olivia. Kelly met Caroline. Austin met Anna Caroline. Jonathan met Mary. And no kidding here either, and I told them this today, and they still agreed with me, these girls were astronomically out of their league. They had no business getting attention from this caliber of girl, just mature and godly and beautiful and fun and all of those things. And everyone was just like, how? How is this? You with her? And uh, they weren't like ultimatum kind of people. You better clean up this, this, and this of your life or else we're done. Not at all. These guys got the message. I want her. I love her. And you know what started happening pretty quickly? All of them to a man got jobs. Most of them worked at Snelling. They all started saving money. They all started meeting up with me and Rob and, other, and the campus minister and other people. It was like, let's, I want to grow. I want to talk about hard things. I want to take responsibility for my life. They grew self-disciplined. They did scary things like asking dads if they could marry the daughters. They spent thousands of dollars on rings. And I saw their lives changed because they bumped into a greater love than the love of sleeping in or the fake love of not having any responsibilities. Do you see how it works? You want to see your behavior and your actions change? See your desires change. Jesus is a lover astronomically out of your league and out of my league. We have no business with someone like him paying any attention to someone like us, right? But he does. He does see you. He does move towards you. He does pay attention to you. He does befriend you. He does love you. He does call you in unique relationship to himself. And this is why the writers of scripture from cover to cover say we love him because he first loved us. And this is why people who truly meet this Jesus and are swallowed up by a greater desire and a greater love see their lives begin to change. Not overnight, I'm not saying that but they begin to see radical changes popping up in their lives. You want to see your actions change. You want to see your heart change, see your desires change, which for some of you is going to look like reconsidering this Jesus, how he sees you, how he stoops down to you, how he befriends you, how he calls you into relationship with himself. It'll involve repenting for our blaming the places we blame God. It'll involve looking for good and perfect gifts God's giving to you even as you continue to limp and trip along, even as you continue to sin, the good things that he does. And it'll involve bringing back to this Jesus 
what you're discovering in your messy trials and temptations and saying, Jesus, I don't like what that bumping spilled out of me. This is ugly. It's not good. Teach me how to leave this behind. Take this out of me. Put me around people, around resources that can help me grow. Let's pray together. Jesus, I've just described a process that cannot happen apart from your spirit who is in our heart, working in us, through us. And so come Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see your beloved Jesus. Would, would we just be in amazement again, anew, afresh, that someone like you, Lord, would have anything to do with someone like us that you would draw us to yourself in love. We pray this in your name.